2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's The
3: Thing. You really thought you knew.
2: Driftwood was written by my guest today, singer and guitarist, Justin Hayward. Listen to how he weaves together the orchestration and the lyrics, chords spiraling up as the singer emerges from a love affair, begging not to be left behind Driftwood on the shore. shore. Hayward is the pen and the voice behind many of the Moody Blues hits, and his influence on pop music has been as enduring as his influence on me. And Hayward is still creating great music, just a more modest kind, trying, as he says, to age gracefully.
3: I like quiet. I've kind of had enough of uh, loud. I do a solo show that's just acoustic, which I really love, and I can hear every nuance. So um, I'm trying to do it with a bit more dignity, and that means quieter. (laughs) You think so? I think so, yeah. But back when you were beginning... (sighs) Loud, you know, I was very lucky. I mean, I come from a sort of middle class background, and I had parents that were very understanding and encouraged me all the way. And as long as I got, they were both teachers, so they got me through all of the exams. So I had the qualifications that I needed. From I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school, and um, then I um, they said, well, you can do what you want as long as you get your five O-levels. So I, I did that, and then I went to work for in an office for a while, uh, for a couple of months, while I was answering ads in The Melody Maker, which was a, a newspaper that all musicians took that had two or three pages of... Um, of situations kind of vacant, and I was firing off answers to ads all over the place, and I had a reply from one, and it was it was said name singer wants guitar player, and I pitched up at this place in East London, and a, a guy called Marty Wilde opened the door. Was one of my heroes. He was a rock and roll singer from the late fifties, early sixties. Solo or he was in a band. So he he had he was a singer, the uh like a, like an Elvis, like an English Elvis, you know, because we was had a solo act. Of, yes, a solo person. We had lots of English Elvises, because we didn't have Elvis, you know. <laughs> right, so yeah. we had we had Cliff in the Shadows who were always my favourites. And we had Marty and people like Vince Eager and Billy Fury. They all had names like that. And Tommy Steele, of course. And uh, I thought, "Wow, and he was six foot five, Marty, and I'm six foot two, and it was like, "Wow, that's Marty wild, <laughs> I had no idea, but I got the job at seventeen playing for Marty, and it put me in London in nineteen sixty four and um that was of course, I was to find out that was exactly the place where you needed to be, not in Swindon, not in Swindon, no, no <laughs> i i I never looked back, you know um." I was in London when that big whole swinging 60s, when the Beatles arrived, and suddenly it was all unfolding before me. You were there. I was there, yes, in it. So when you perform, how long are you with Marty and you're doing... You're just playing guitar for Marty? Yes, I was playing guitar for Marty and watching him and learning from him and trying to edge myself in to do a song in his set, which he very graciously let me do. Something you I, wrote? And, uh, no, not something I wrote. I think it was a cover version. Uh, and, Were you doing uh, any songwriting then? The most important thing Marty told me was that he, he was a songwriter and he'd been... Um, he was writing under a different name because he had a lousy deal. But I, I, he told me then that to survive in the business, you must have your own identity and your own style that people recognise, and it must be unique to you. And if that doesn't work, forget it. You know, go mm-hmm. back and do something else. So, um, or I live in obscurity. Yes, yes, yes. I You're was quite prepared guy. to do that. Were, yes. you, were you really? I think I still am. People know some of the music, but I'm a bit obscure. So I started writing songs when I was with Marty.
2: And you're known as much as a great songwriter as you are as a a guitarist
3: and vocalist and performer. And when does songwriting become? Well, using Marty in a cruel way His Marty is still my hero. And I still know him and I love him very much for what he gave to me. But from that moment on, I was always looking for a stepping stone and how to push this forward. And so as soon as I got the job with the Moody Blues um, in 66, in the summer of 66, I was looking to do my songs. with a, a. That was the vehicle. I thought, here's another vehicle that I can use. to. Had you been
2: writing them before oh, you met the Moody oh, Blues? Yeah, so yeah. you had been songwriting. S-
3: since two years before that, yeah. I made a couple of records. They were lousy. But I'd done a lot of demos and things like that. And a lot of demos that um, we did then with the Moody's in um, a couple of my songs right early on, one called Fly Me High and Mm -hmm. another one called Cities. And um, me and Mike, the the guy who brought me to this rhythm and blues band that was the Moody Blues, were trying to get our songs done, but we would do two 45-minute sets, one with rhythm and blues stuff, and I just wasn't very good at it. And then another set with all our own material. And the, the rhythm and blues set would go down quite well because people knew it. But the original material would be like. <laughs> <You know that. laughs> it wasn't was it very like, memorable. No, no. Well, I thought it was good, but um, it, it needs a following with new music. Sure.
2: The band had formed and you were brought in. Yes, or that's
3: right. The, the band had been going. And, and someone left. And then two guys left. I sent some songs again to Eric Burden because I knew somebody in his office. And uh, Eric must have thought these are quite interesting and gave them to Mike because he'd met Mike at a club. And Mike has said, we're looking for somebody. And well, um, Eric must have said, well, uh, here's all this stuff I received from this guy with all these songs and some pictures. And the next thing I know, I had a a call out of the blue from Mike Pinder. How does that evolve
2: once you were did they have hit records by then
3: yes they had one um, Go Now right. which was a great song it was a cover of a, a Bessie Banks record right and who becomes the decider of what goes on days of future past well in that time we're just grabbing at straws anything right. We might not continue, but you've just got to pay the rent. That's all. i just got to pay the petrol to get in the car. I don't know whether I'm going to be in this group for two months. I don't know whether this is a stepping stone. I don't know whether it has any future. I'm not sure whether I like them. I don't think they like me. I'm from a very different background. you know, with, Do you mean similar. that truly? I mean, all of these things go through your mind. I mean, I'm at 19. Yes, all of these things yeah, go through kid. your mind, of course. Yeah, you're just a kid. And you just wonder if there's a door out of here that maybe opens to something better or something like that. But we made Fly Me High, which was a song of mine, and in 66. And BBC took that up then we had a debt to DECA, the recording company they bought us some equipment so they had a call on us on our time and they came to us with an idea of making a demonstration stereo record that would demonstrate their stereo systems they had a um, consumer division that made stereo systems <clears throat> and they wanted to sell them they had the biggest the second largest classical catalog in the world apart from Deutsche Grammophon, uh-huh. which is why in the end they were bought by Deutsche Grammophon. So they now Deutsche Grammophon, Philips Phonogram, Universal now, has all of the great masterworks, classical masterworks. And um, so they wanted to demonstrate that rock and roll could be interesting in stereo as well as classical music because it was confined to classical music at the time. And then, um, so they asked us to make... Const- to, to think as their kind of house band to make um a rock version of Dvorak so we kind of said that, what what does that what does that mean it's like well you get some time in the studio because they had these beautiful recording studios with great engineers so it was like okay okay anything you know to try and get in the studio anything and um it's a bit of a car crash. lot. Five different people have five different versions of what happened. Right. This is what I believe happened. Peter Knight, the orchestral ranger, came to see us at the 100 Club, and he saw us doing our second set where people were like... <laughs> like <that. laughs> and he said to us afterwards, maybe you're not going to get Dvorak together. Maybe we do it the other way around. We record your songs... And I take the themes from those songs and do an orchestral romantic treatment of them. And then we've got this juxtaposition with classical. It's like, okay, that sounds a great idea (laughs) because then we we just we get in the studio and do our own songs, which we did. We went in the studio. We had we gave ourselves. It was very sort of diplomatic things. You get two songs, you get two songs, then knock something up. And um, I we'd already recorded Nights in White Satin oh. six months before. Had, you, had it been released? No. It Hadn't been released, yeah. No, it had been released by the... B, it was recorded for the BBC. That's a rather strange story because we recorded it for the BBC for a, a program called Easy Beat. And we were listening to it on the in our van going up the motorway. And I, me and some of the others... Um, were a bit stoned, so we're listening to it and I was th- and we were thinking, we pulled over on the side of the road and we thought there's something spooky about that, you know, it's kind of spooky that song, something weird about it, kind of empty and so w- when we got to the gig, we phoned up the BBC and we got the engineer and we said we'd convinced ourselves we'd never do it any better, we'd convinced ourselves, you must do this, that it's a ma- moment in time it's a magic and I can never do it again yeah. and um we got to the gig and we phoned them up and we said, you, you know, we did that session this morning with that song, Nights, on it. And they said, yeah. And they said, could we, we said could we have a, a copy? And they said, "Ah, oh, no, we, re- we use the tape. We re-record over the tape because it's tape. You know, that's what it's for. So you can re-record over it. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. i <laughs> we'll never be able to do it again. What happened? Well, six months later, we did record it for Decca. In a better studio, I hope. In a better studio. I was never sure it was better until about five years ago. And some old radio guy came up to me and said, you remember that tape that you did? He said, well, actually, they did a transcription for overseas broadcast for – they used to do military broadcasts overseas. And he said, uh, and I've got a copy of it. (laughs) You
2: got the original back. I got the
3: original back. And which was better? Were you right? The original was better? I think it probably was. Interesting. Simpler.
2: Dick Cavett told me on this show, the talk show host Dick Cavett, yeah. said that when he finished his seminal show, you know, five years on ABC, the, his great uh, run he had with that original show, he said then was over, they said that all the shows were on these boxes in a room with these tapes. And they said, do you want them? We're changing formats. We're not going to be able to reuse these tapes. Some of his shows, they had recorded over, yeah. uh, and then, then but when the show ended, if I remember him correctly, he said, we're just going to throw this stuff in the garbage, we're just going to burn it, or we're going to just throw it in a, in a disposal. Uh, we just have no use for it. We, we don't know what to do. There was no aftermarket then. They said, do you want this stuff? You can have it. And he boxed up every single one of them, I had them all released on DVD years later. Brilliant. He held on to everything, and that's his legacy now on, uh, on the internet and beyond. Brilliant. Now, so the— Brilliant. We well, did it, his show. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's great. So the uh, but when you get back to the Dvorak and the and Decca yeah. and the studio and the, and the and the classical thing, did you guys ever do the Dvorak New World Symphony lift? Did you ever make no. the record? No. no.
3: No. No. Yeah. And the no, ones no. And my, we just did our own songs. We were selfish. You know, we, we uh, saw it as a way for a way in, <clears throat> and it was released. So no one's got a tape of that laying around we can listen to the Dvorak
2: sessions. Absolutely not. No. Okay, That's cool. No. When did you realize that? When did you sit there and say, "I think I'm going to stick around with these guys and this works"? Well, after
3: "Nights" came out, yeah. After uh, well, after night, "Nights," was a hit immediately in France. Then it was resisted over here because it's just not an AM record. Mm-hmm. So they really, they they could make a two-minute, ten-second version of Tuesday Afternoon, which they released. And actually, it was a hit here in the in the US, a song called Tuesday Afternoon from the same album. And only about six months later did they release Nights. And then it just stuck around for ages. So then we had to... Then Decca was run by wonderful elderly gentlemen. It was owned by a man called Sir Edward Lewis, who w- was... Charming, but would say things like you'd be talking to about something. And, and he said to me one day, he invited me to lunch, and I was trying to persuade him to keep the studios open. And then halfway through my spiel, he said, "Like to drive fast, do you?" He came to us after Days of Future Past and said, "Listen, I don't know what you boys are doing. People seem to like it. So here's the studio. All yeah. of these staff are yours. Lousy royalty." fantastic studio best of luck goodbye (laughs) yes and so that's where we stayed for the next seven years and we made several great albums it was the song called Question in 1970 that finally got to the top of the charts and it happened all at once and that's when I suddenly thought maybe maybe this is it you know maybe I'm meant to be with this crew and this is like four Four years into it yeah four years into it yes maybe that's it Was everybody getting along? I don't like to ask that question. Not really. really. uh, Everybody wants the best for everybody, the best for the project, the best for the group, and the best for themselves. And that's sometimes difficult to reconcile. With a group of men, there's always egos that are involved and a dynamic where some people rise up and some people diminish, some people... Retreat right out of the door. Who was yeah. calling
2: the shots in the band? Who was in charge?
3: A manager? You
2: fired Epstein, right? He was your manager first. Yes. And yeah, you fired he was him useless. in the sixties.
3: Yeah. He was, yeah. <laughs> was totally. Now he was in love with the Beatles, and that um, that he was, was off where with he be- them. Yeah. That well, was. Yeah, that was where he belonged. Right. And he was a lovely, elegant, beautiful man. Nothing to do with us at, at right. all, you know. And um, we didn't really have a manager, and that was. Going back to your, one of your points, we didn't have an A&R guy, so we didn't have anybody to please. We didn't have to make hit records. We just had these elderly gentlemen saying, you do what you don't want, uh, you know, get on with it. People seem to like it. People are buying stereos. Take a stereos. Yes, and FM was just starting, you know, in America. Your stuff is perfect for that. Who would have thought it? You no know, kind of thing. And um, we had no A&R guy standing over us, no pressure to make singles to have success, just albums. And those albums weren't prog rock they were just nice romantic songs that were from the heart most of the time they failed but there were some things that really are kind of magic in there not everything was like that so that brings us to like 1970 when the whole business is starting to change in uh, what way as far as you're concerned it's starting people are starting to realize there's big money and i'm going to get an
2: A&R guy eventually
3: um, no, no, we never. never. Got, no, no. The, cl- the, the closest I got was to work with one of my heroes, which was Tony Visconti in the 80s. And if I could have one decade of music only to listen to, it would be the 80s. What artists? Tears for Fears to all of that wonderful s- stuff that was made in the 80s. And, he was their uh, producer? No, I don't think he did them. Um, he did um, David Bowie. And uh, he was an American living in London, very attractive. And um, I met him on a project that I was asked to do for the BBC. And I thought this is the guy and that I could actually have what I want, what I personally wanted. This doesn't sound as if I'm aiming very high and I'm not discounting everything that went before it, which is which is wonderful, which is wonderful. But then we made Wildest Dreams together, which for me was the perfect pop record. And that's what I really wanted. Why? Why was it the perfect one as compared to the others? The the mix was right and there was some lovely programming in it. Tony had such a wonderful ear and made such beautiful sounds and still one of my greatest friends. And that... um, Everything came together right then.
2: So when you guys, were, you would all record together. Describe what recording the early albums, like Days of Future Past. Was it all five of you in a room together?
3: Uh, yes, but it was Days of Future Past was songs that we'd rehearsed beforehand and we were ready. And I think we did, we did our, our songs in three days. We already had nights. The other thing, I chose the afternoon because it was the story. We decided to do the story of the day in the life of one guy. and I said, I'll have the afternoon. <laughs> Still, I'd already yeah, got right, nights, right. you know, yeah, so, um, and Tuesday afternoon, oh, nice, and Mike had this lovely song that he asked me to sing called Dawn is a Feeling, so that was the top and tail and the middle of it, and um, we we did our stuff in maybe three days, and it introduced us to Tony Clark, our record producer, and a great engineer called Derek Varnel, so it was a real kind of nerdy kind of bob. Your producer was who? Tony Clark.
2: And what did he do for you?
3: Was he of any value to you? Yes, he he was one of those record producers that you must know how this goes as, a, as, a, as the actor that you are. But Tony wouldn't talk about the music, about you should do that chord and you should play that instead of do, you know. He would say, well, I see the sky darkening and then in the corner there's a pin of light, Lights. and 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 it Imagery. shines through onto this side of your face, and you and you turn and you yes, and that, and, and I'd go downstairs, and and they say, was he stoned out of his mind? No, no, okay, no, okay, no. Okay. He was, no. Now, I was. Really? I go downstairs, and they say, what's he want you to do then, Juss? And I said, well, I'll I'll play at E A and G. Remember. <laughs> Right. It,
4: you, know. you were there to but figure would, out what it meant but,
3: but i loved that whole thing and i would have that in my mind pretty useless is when it comes to the chords but right. he was that kind of producer and
2: with three days you burned off that album. you did yeah days. yeah our part of
3: that album and then the orchestral part the orchestra never plays with us on our songs on days of future past the sounds that you hear on nights and tuesday afternoon and dawn is a feeling and another morning the orchestral that things that sound like orchestral are that instrument called the mellotron. of course they have that orchestra it has that orchestral sound and so the orchestra did the links between us the orchestra was recorded on a sat on the saturday our stuff was done like uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, our st- the orchestra was recorded in a three hour session on the Saturday, I was the only one that was there from the group, because I had nothing else to do, and they let me sit in the studio, you couldn't go in the control room in those days, you weren't invited, you had to be invited into the control room, which rarely happened, they would play it back to you on the studio floor and i watched them the orchestra this bunch of gypsies like eastern european string players they were fabulous fabulous and they rehearsed it once through live they took a tea break for half an hour then they recorded it live in one take bang that's it with peter knight sitting at the piano conducting with one hand and just strings no the whole orchestra the whole orchestra. How many would you guess? The, the gypsies were the important part right. because they were the string section yeah. that was going to create this mood. The rest of it was filling in the background and stuff like that. It's a, it's a triptych. It's the,
2: it's the moody blues. It's an orchestra, and the mellotron is its own. It's the sixth member of the orchestra or the band, so to speak. Yeah. How does that? Where do you find that? Tell people what it is.
3: Who designed it? Who developed it? Who played it? Okay. Mike Pinder played it. He worked for that company for a while, Mellotronics. It was designed as a sound effects instrument to be for, used where in radio shows and things like that. Had Spike Jones kind of sounds on it, so like bang, bang. and trains rushing through tunnels and cockerels and spaceships. Yes, whoosh and things like that. Had four manuals, but a small part of it was orchestral sounds. Was the an eight-minute tape loop of things like strings, brass, flutes, and organ, and a chorale kind of thing. It was just one small section, and Mike remembered this instrument because we couldn't get our songs to work. Mine and his didn't really work with piano and um, or Vox Continental. So he said, "I remember this instrument called the Mellotron that had these orchestral sounds." So he knew there was one up in Birmingham at a social club. So actually he and I and the roadie went up there and we it was stuck up in the corner. They'd forgotten about it. And we paid them £25 for it and we brought it back to London. And Mike got rid of all of the Spike Jones type sounds and replaced them with the orchestral sounds. So there was like four small manuals on it, keyboards like that, a couple of octaves each. So you had eight seconds to hold this note down, and then the tape would stop, and it would spring back. It was on spring-loaded, so you had to roll your hands over this instrument to cover it all the time. Da, 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 da. The other guys weren't really interested when I played them "Nights," until Mike went on the mellotron and "Nights in Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, that's interesting.
2: Moody Blues singer and songwriter Justin Hayward. In his song, Tuesday Afternoon, you can hear him playing around with the motifs that eventually would come to characterize the band.
4: The
3: trees are drawing me near I've got to find out why Those gentle voices I hear Explain it all with a sigh
2: That's the Mellotron. You can hear Hayward's signature genre mixing, too, from folky ballad to a honky-tonk Happy Trails bassline. All this influenced another musical hero of mine, John Anderson, the front man for Yes. But that band almost never got off the ground because of the pragmatic parents of legendary drummer Bill Bruford. He left the band after a month because his parents said he had to be a lawyer wait a minute, we've just started. <laughs> so Bill went to Leeds University, and two months later, we played there. And he stood in the audience thinking, this is really a great band. What am I doing here at university? And within two weeks, he was back in the band. My interview with Yes frontman John Anderson is in our archives at heresthething.org. Coming up, Justin Hayward inspires me to sing a few bars of his anti-war song You and me.
4: Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest Justin Hayward sings and plays guitar on this track. I'm just a singer, but the title is a joke. You can hear the bombast in his guitar solo, unusually showy for the moody blues, matched by lyrics about the power of musicians to change the world. When we left Justin Hayward, it was 1967, and the Moody Blues had just released their classic album, Days of Future Past. The album is a hit. No. It's not? No? <laughs> I wish it had been. No. Even, even modestly?
3: <laughs> kind of. It was... No, not really. One you were pleased with? Were you pleased with it? I, I wouldn't say pleased. Uh, I, was, I listened to it back, and I thought, this is so beautiful. Nobody's going to buy this. There's nothing commercial on it at all. It's something for sort of classical bods and people who like romantic things. There's not nothing there. It's not like, um, my baby told me yesterday I'm going to yeah. the day. I <laughs> can't get
2: no. Yeah, it's there's yeah. nothing like that. You're not wiggling it in front
3: of a bunch of girls, yeah. Nothing. So um, very nice and very, very beautiful well, so what happens that it keeps going forward? It the... did start this thing where people started becoming interested in stereo, and you had the birth of FM in America with London Records, and suddenly FM radio, instead of having records, I am ashamed to say actually that I was always a bit disappointed in George, who was working down the road with, at Abbey Road with Beatles. Would his idea of stereo was the drums on the left and the vocals on the right, you know, George Martin? Yes, and. Whereas our stuff was a beautiful stereo picture, beautifully recorded. And of course, for FM radio, it's like, wow, this is what we need. Yeah. This is kind of a whole cinematic thing. Yes, it's rich and deep and wide and everything's in an interesting place. And um, it it was just lucky that it that it happened like that. So it started to take off slowly. Decker recognized this stereo thing is the rock and roll is going to work. Yeah. So then they... It's like back in the studio, boys, and um, we need another album. And so, within three months, we were back in the studio.
2: Now, 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 as time goes on, when do you or any members of the band start to get uh, itchy? They want to maybe do something else. They want to go on their own. As is inevitably, with any judgment of the people in the band, does the band begin to outlive its usefulness to you or to other members, or do they
3: stay solid for a long time? All of those things that you've just said, because it's about people. It's not so much about the music and the band. It's about people, and people's lives change. You know, I, I didn't have anything at the beginning. I just had a girlfriend and a car. I, I had noth- a guitar. Not, nothing to lose. Yeah. You know, it's people with money that worry about money. It's millionaires that worry about money, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's not guys with nothing. A couple of famous
2: bands, very famous bands, people would say to me, who were in the bands? There were two things they thought was the beginning of the dissolution of the band. One was they made a lot of money, and some of these guys would rather stay home and play music for themselves or with their friends. It wasn't they were like, hey, man, I've had enough music. I've had enough of going to work. Mm -hmm. And the, the next thing you know, they're in their castle Outside of town uh, on their estate and they're in their own studio going boom boom They're just smoking a joint and relaxing and having a glass of wine And also the drugs were a big part of the dissolution of some bands because people it just
3: made them less disciplined Did you see that around you? Absolutely, you've described it perfectly and uh, not particularly me myself. Me, I have a kind of, I feel a kind of duty. P- people say to me now, "Are oh, you still? It was like you still going? Yeah. Well, you enjoy it, don't you?" I said, "No, I don't enjoy it. As an overused word, you know, why should I be- enjoy everything all the time?" And um, I'm enjoying this now. My God, it's Alec Baldwin, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. But I don't have to enjoy it. I-, I do feel a kind of duty to do it because I can. And it's something, it's all kind of all I've got, really. So I, I I, have to do that, and I always felt that. There was a time, yes, 74, when I could see things slip. One of the guys just didn't want to do it anymore, and we just made no plans. Nothing was said that couldn't be unsaid, fortunately. It was said a few years later, within four years, it was said that couldn't be unsaid. But we just drifted apart for a while, and... um you were married at the time by 74 yeah, were you married yeah, yeah and did
2: you when, when did you have, your, you have one child
3: yeah, yeah and you had your child when at
2: 72. so by 74 you're mm-hmm. you're a husband and a father yeah i got responsibilities and did, yeah. that, and did that start to affect the, the work as well you're sitting there going i don't necessarily want to go on the road no the not
3: really I, I, no uh no i i don't think that did um no i was, I was also selfish i just wanted to do what i this is all very curious, and, and I don't want to stop you in mid-flow, but I, I, I'm going to say this. It's a curious... I've been I'm contemplating my own ghost for most of my life. And because there's always that... I always have to look... I'm being reminded. Here we are now, talking about the Justin that was from 17 years old to 30 years old. So this ghost is always with me. And I use him all the time. I see pictures of him all the time. I discuss him all the time. I use his experience. I draw on his experiences and the love and the emotions that he had all of the time. But it is a curious thing. I don't mean to stop you in your tracks, uh, but it, it is a true thing. And... Um, it's the same for most people of my age in the, in this business because the most valuable commodity in this business, as you know, is youth. And um, so although it's always interesting to talk and people, of course, want to know about these old things, it's still that I have to contemplate this ghost of Justin – every day does it trouble you does it ir- does it
2: irritate you i don't um you don't have to say if you don't want to but people have much more of an identification with music and and songs and sound than they do with movies. If they lay there and they die, you say to them, what's the thing you remember most? And they'll sit there going, there's a leafless tree in Asia. (laughs) The sun is a homeless man here. That's what they remember, songs, music, songs. You can never forget that, that there's that ghost that you are. But that guy made music that lives forever. People are good. Yeah.
3: So really really what you're saying, and and you've, you've just set me right back here because who cares about your bloody ghost, mate? You know, it's the music. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you because I can listen to Buddy or the Everlys or Nat King Cole and it doesn't matter. I'm not thinking about them, uh, uh, you know, as people. I'm just thinking about actually me. And what it means to me in my heart, and how it makes me feel, and uh, and that's it. Yes. So disregard that (laughs) (laughs) that that stuff I was talking about. I'll send you a bill. I'll send you a
2: bill for this therapy session. Now, when you guys you guys eventually stop performing, you eventually stop. You break up for about
3: four years. Yeah. Who calls who and says let's try again? Well, it was a it was a wonderful time for me because I became a father, and I discover I actually started having a life outside of the group I hadn't had a life outside of the group I'd just been this guy um, I'd just been that ghost and that people wanted to photograph you know and um, a kind of pretty boy from the 60s or whatever and you made nice music and I was that character but suddenly I had a life and I became me. It's like, oh, I want to be me. And, yeah. you know, and I was.
0: I know the feeling. And,
3: and, um, and that was great. And I was lucky enough to have a big hit, solo hit, with a song called Forever Autumn, which was from um, uh, the H.G. Wells story, a musical version of the H.G. Wells story, The War of the Worlds. And that kind of put me on top of the pops every night. And suddenly people were saying, oh, you're you're Justin Hayward, i you know you, you got that blonde hair that goes you know like and uh, that was that was real fun what happened when we came back together was that a guy called jerry Weintrobe made the phone call we met jerry Weintrobe in the early 70s when music started becoming into stadiums and he walked into our dressing room once in about 1972 and said you don't need these promoters why didn't you promote yourselves? Look at all those people. What are you getting? 5,000 bucks? There's a, you know, there's 20,000 people here. What are you doing? And so we were like, oh, yeah. Well, all right. <laughs> and he said, if we lose money on one gig, we lose it. But we can make it on these other things. So we had a new way of touring. And, of course, he was desperately disappointed when we um, um, decided to... Drift apart, so he was always calling. Did you stay in touch with the band when the band drifted apart? Not really. You didn't. You you you
2: you you'd exhausted
3: that. Not not really. Uh, it's just um, you don't have to be friends. It's just you're in a group together. You've had success right. together. You you often can't choose that. Were you friends with? They probably were I I'm probably the group member from hell because I'm the guy who always says I want to do it my way. I'm not going to tell you how what it is but i'm gonna do it <laughs> yeah yeah it's all right but do this all right better if you do it this way
2: yeah see i look at other bands where they're in each other's lives so much they spend so much time together than when they drift apart they've kind of had enough
3: yeah you weren't best friends with any of them <clears throat> not really and um, but i wasn't certainly wasn't enemies there's no, no, right. no we were no we we, we were um we we had this common bond that's unbreakable. We had the same cathartic experience every night. And that's a very powerful thing to have yeah. to share between, um, between people. What do you, we, let's talk about yeah. that for a second. Okay.
2: When you would perform,
3: yeah. I'm sure when you perform live,
2: it's very similar to the theatrical experience versus the film and television experience where you're doing take after to take after to take in films and you're trying to kind of buff those edges and make it mm. just so. When you do it live... You no, you've got you one shot at
3: it, and I want to make it right in the middle of the note. And then if you get right in the middle of the note, it creates a kind of magic that sprinkles down and the audience brings something to it that's affecting and life-enhancing and that's absolutely wonderful. And, but, then, but and what, then it's gone.
2: What was your preparation? Did you have to do warm-ups uh, no, and no. baby your voice and no, no smoking and no this and no alcohol?
3: And No, no, no. You didn't? Uh, no, I'm I'm afraid not. No, I, I've always I'm such a lazy person. I've always considered my voice should look after me. No, I don't have to look after my <laughs> voice. <laughs> so you come back after four years. Weintraub gets you to come
2: Weintrap together. Weintraub gets us to come you. And you've been performing since then, off
3: and on. Yes, I did a couple of solo albums, and um, then I had this War of the Worlds, which was suddenly, da, you know, another character. I actually played a character. I played a journalist. It. In this uh, concept album, which I went on later to do on stage, actually, um, quite recently, until I got, I just felt I was too old to have a girlfriend in it. So I said, maybe I'm not the right guy for this. But it was a lovely song called Forever Autumn, a big hit all around the world. I can go anywhere in the world and play it. So, oh i love that you know kind of thing and you, that, that was, was a solo album for you it was a solo thing and, for what, me,
2: yeah. and what is it? and i say the same thing to all these legacy yeah. bands that come back together yeah. octave octave yeah i mean i yeah. just love when guys pull this out of their you know what Mm. 78, you guys have been recording now for 15 years, or you've mm. been together and your albums. This is like, is this like your eighth album or something like that? Mm. Like, I don't remember yeah, exactly. Eighth album, yeah. Where you had Stepping in a Slide Zone in there. That was in 78. Yeah. Did you like that album?
3: There was so- some lovely songs on it. There was a lovely song called Driftwood. That, oh, it um, just, that, that's why, okay, okay, that's why I bring it up. Oh, that's a beautiful song. I love that song. Thank you. Thank you. it ma- meant a lot to me. It was a difficult album because things, the chemistry between us wasn't particularly good. I knew Mike didn't want to do it anymore. Tony Clark had a lot of personal problems. The producer, he'd come to and uh, bless him, his marriage was uh, at an end. And it was it was he only made a few appearances and Driftwood would he couldn't listen to it. He would come into the studio and I'd. Put that on just to do some little overdub, and the tears would well up. Poor chap, and and he and he'd have to leave, you know. And also, during the album, there were things said that couldn't be unsaid. Oh, wow! And so one, so then we lost from the group Tony and Mike, and then Weinrobe was particularly well. You got to go on, and it was like, well, Okay. <laughs> you know, really. Okay. And you replaced Mike with who? Um, we replaced Mike with a series of people, but um, a, a lovely player called Patrick Mraz. And I know Patrick Mraz. Yes. Fantastic musician. He wasn't replaced. Nobody could replace Mike, right. but he was a, um, a paid pickup musician for that. Yeah, he was a great musician, yeah. The, um, contributed uh, a lot to the records after that. Patrick Moraz, who also played, who did he play
2: with? Did he replace he, Wakeman and yes? yes? exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's why I know we Because we had, we, we had a, a
3: John Anderson came in here. Oh, okay, yeah.
2: You try to keep up with music? You listen to all kinds of music? As a yes, diverse. I do.
3: Curiously enough, I've probably gone back to my childhood where I just hear a song... And I buy it. You, you know, I'm back to buying singles that turn me on. You know, I'm a bit hung up on a, a young boy called Trevor Hall at the moment, who's kinda of hippie player. And I'd love to be I'd love to be him. <laughs> He'd love to be you. Not really. I'm there, doing there's it. there's always a kid walking down the street, Alec, who's got a song that's gonna turn me on. Yeah. That's the way I think about music. And I can still go back to um, Any old piece of music that I love, I still return every couple of weeks to Danny Williams singing Moon River. As opposed to Andy Williams, for all he says now. Danny Williams was an English singer, listened to that version of Moon River. I met him he was with the same stable as Marty Wilde when I was a boy and he was just I'm doing with you as I'm if you hear scribbling on the mic I'm doing with you what I did with Joe
2: Jackson. Joe Jackson did the show and at the end he just riffs on the music he's listening to. And I'm sitting there and I literally just had this urge this instinct I'm like holy shit I got to write down every word <laughs> that comes out of Joe Jackson's mouth as to what music <laughs> is he digging right now you know I okay. mean so um yeah we're not going to have much time left, but we'll, we'll just take one tableau where I'm 16 or 17 years old, probably 16. I'm hanging out with a crowd of guys in my uh, kind of working class neighborhood. And these really tough bastards I grew up with would all sit there and be like, someone would put on a Moody Blues song. And everybody would be like, shut up! <laughs> like these violent, awful people. We're going to go beat the shit out of people and steal their beer in a parking lot. We'd well, be like, shut up! <laughs> And they had to listen to that song. That was the beautiful music that we kind of cleared our head with, was oh, your that's music. Oh. You were the palate cleanser from all the nastiness we had as our quotidian diet there. So,
3: And the sleeves were pretty nice, too. You could <laughs> contemplate those while you were being quiet. That was nice. Thank you for coming to doing this with me. Great pleasure. Thank you. Cool.
2: That was the brilliant singer and songwriter, Justin Hayward. His music was both timeless and of his era. The leafless tree in Asia line you heard us sing is a reference to the napalm-defoliated trees of Vietnam. It's been 46 years since he wrote those words. Next month, Hayward, along with the Moody Blues, will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
4: At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and every